My name is Kate McGregor, and I work at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. We strive to bring together the history and the excitement of technology with real-life experiences where students can engage and families can engage in learning out of school and hopefully find new and interesting paths that they can pursue themselves. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. From their website, the Computer History Museum is a nonprofit organization with a four-decade history as the world's leading institution exploring the history of computing and its ongoing impact on society. The museum is dedicated to the preservation and celebration of computer history and is home to the largest international collection of computing artifacts in the world, encompassing computer hardware, software, documentation, ephemera, photographs, oral histories, and moving images. <sighs> it's a lot of stuff. Kate is a STEAM advocate, museum educator, and curriculum designer, striving to help students, families, and educators to explore concepts of problem solving and innovation through the lenses of computer science and computer history. At the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, Kate manages family and community guided and self-guided programming events and activities for intergenerational audiences. Kate developed and leads the museum's flagship Design Code Build program, which engages middle school youth from all parts of the community. I sat down with Kate to hear more about the museum and to see if she could offer us a sliver of a too often overlooked aspect of the history covered there that would serve as a primer to all of us interested in exploring the crucial history of women in computer science. She shares just some of the names from computer history's past who all of us not just the programmers and engineers, should strive to know more about. Enjoy. Kate, thanks for joining No Such Thing. I'm really excited to have you uh, on and to talk about the Computer History Museum. Um, so the museum is in Mountain View, California. Uh, a lot of people don't know about Computer History Museum um, can you, let's start with a little bit of the history of the Computer History Museum and um, and what it is you all um, are setting out to accomplish there. Yeah, so the Computer History Museum is a really amazing place. I'm a little biased, of course, but <laughs> I find it fascinating. Uh, my personal background isn't exactly in technology. And the first time that I visited the museum, I thought I'd spend an hour exploring the exhibits. And after about four hours, I had barely touched the surface of what was there. Um, our museum is a world-class institution and the collection actually originally started in Boston. And um, our chairman of the board, Len Schustek, was able to uh, move the collection out here to California. And along with the support and help of many, many people, volunteers, staff, su financial supporters, donors, and trustees, we're able to now have a really incredible institution where we're able to um, explore all kinds of new and exciting aspects of technology in today's world, as well as reflecting on the past and how we came to be where we are today. So um, we're excited to welcome historic figures and our museum is not just about the incredible artifacts that we do have there on site, mm -hmm. um, but also about the stories of computer history and the people and the innovators as well. And so through the work that I do, we definitely, I definitely try to bring together um, stories that people can relate to, people of all ages can relate to, and not just tech people, but all people. And I think that technology is something that today is all around us. Very few people um, go through their day 
without using some kind of computer chip in something that they're using, whether that's a vehicle or a refrigerator or a phone um, or a laptop. So um, it's really something that all of us are part of that story. And the museum is, um, I think, doing a really exciting and great job in telling that story. What's it? You actually, you, um, that's a, a terrific segue because you, you talked about um, that it's not only celebrating artifacts, but, but, um, innovators and, and that's, uh, what we're here to talk about today, right? We're going to talk about women in computing and I'm really excited to do this, um, with you before, before we get to that, um, I do just to, to give people, so people are, um, people are listening to this and wondering like what does a computer history museum even look like so um, can you just describe what maybe it's your favorite um, your favorite collection at the museum or favorite experience that somebody might come in and um, and interact with Sure, absolutely. So we have a huge collection. We have, I think, the world's largest collection of artifacts relating to specifically computer history. And so on site in our exhibit spaces, we have um, two large exhibits. Um, Revolution is the first 2000 years of computer history. So we start back as far as the abacus and slide rule and um, really look at how calculating and tabulating came, uh, came along. And as I relate to the artifacts and the stories. And as I work with students and families who visit us, I often think about the way that humans are just never satisfied with something being the way they, the way that it is. And I think mm. that's true today. And it was true hundreds of years ago. We're always trying to improve things and make them more efficient, better. And really technology is a tool that we can use to extend the capabilities of our own human potential. So we start as far back as the abacus and slide rule and move through punch cards and real-time computing all the way up to networking in the web with stops along the way, looking at memory and storage and supercomputers and mini computers, which aren't mini by today's standards, but were pretty incredible at the time and mm. everything in between. So that's a really exciting exhibit. A lot of really rich history there featuring not just the artifacts, as I mentioned, but also the people who created them and, and highlighting the context of how and why those things came to be. So our other exhibit that's really exciting is called Make Software Change the World. And it's an exhibit that tells the story of seven different types of technology that have really mm. changed the way that we interact with each other and have had a really large impact on human life and human society. So in that exhibit, we look at stories of um, MRI software and car crash simulation technology. We look Whoa. at yeah, we look at Wikipedia, texting, and World of Warcraft, and Photoshop, really highlighting ways in which we're using technology now that change the way that we build community, that change the way that we think about interacting, that open up new doors and possibilities for people around the world. Hmm. Um, so I love that exhibit. It's very uh, hands-on, so it's a little bit different than what we've previously done. And we also have some other exhibits that look at all other aspects of both the historic elements of computer history as well as where we are today. So we have an exhibit, a temporary exhibit right now that's about autonomous vehicles. And we have one of the Waymo self-driving cars there that you can kind of sit in and check out and learn about the technology with the radar systems interacting with the software. Yeah. Um, um, as well tell, as all- tell people who don't know what Waymo is. <laughs> sure. So Waymo is Google's autonomous vehicle. And um, in the past 
year or so, two years maybe, they've renamed the autonomous vehicles they're working on to be Waymo. Um, Google's actually just down the street from us. Their main campus is about half a block away from the museum. So Mm. the Computer History Museum really is located in the heart of Silicon Valley with incredible tech innovators and companies all around us. Um, The building itself um, is one of our largest artifacts because it actually was um, the, the Silicon Graphics building years mm. ago. So mm. um, there's history within the building and the building itself. Um, one of my favorite exhibits to leave back to go back to your question is um, the IBM 1401 demo lab. And mm. for me, I have really been influenced by that computer and by the exhibit itself, um, partly because of our incredible team of volunteers who restored those machines and brought them back to life, and partly because it's just really amazing to feel like you're stepping back in time when you walk into that room and feel um, the temperature change in the air and the mechanical kind of smell of the machines and hear the noise of the printers running and the machines running. It's really, really neat to be able Mm. to have that experience for young children who have never seen that kind of large room-sized type of computer, as well as older people who may have experience actually using O26 key punches and punching code into paper punch cards and um, coding back uh, in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. So it's a great opportunity. What uh, What's the most notable thing that the IBM 1401 um, was tasked with? Well, in 1959, in October, the IBM 1401 was launched, and um, I Personally, I don't think that anyone really realized the impact that it was going to have on business and on the world and on um, computers. Um, By 1965, over half of the computers that existed in the world at that time um, were IBM 1401 computers. So it uh, very quickly gained momentum. People around the world were using this computer. It was programmed with paper punch cards. And so um, people were sitting at what somewhat resemble keyboards or typewriter type of keyboards and um, punching holes in paper cards that were then giving instructions to the computer to run programs, to store data. Um, And the computers were really big, as I mentioned, and had all these different components that were connected with these huge wires. Um, So they were actually rented. They were not purchased by companies typically. You could rent the computer and the base elements of the computer, um, including a card reader punch and um, the CPU um, for $2,500 a month. But most people added on a lot of peripherals. And actually, the most popular peripheral was the printer, the 1403 printer, which could print straighter lines of text and more quickly than any other printer that had ever existed. So a lot of people were really, really excited about the 1401 system because of the 1403 printer. Isn't that great? Um, I love how even just the vocabulary that um, remains as residue from from that era, um, you know, the idea of peripherals and... and, um, I mean, I suppose even code as uh, as a, a a way that uh, we make computing happen um, has just you know it's all just changed so much. But that er, I, I think one of the neat things in thinking about uh, a trip to the museum is really thinking about uh, for young people. Like when I talk to my son about where some of the language of computing comes from, um, he's really fascinated by that and and. Uh, 
And so it's so neat to think about it. Um, from back in the day and even as i'm saying that it feels silly because we're talking about not even um i guess we're talking about what a, a half a century or so mm-hmm. um in the you know if you look at um i wonder for you when you think about the history of computing right you you all at the museum are starting to track a history that is is relatively new um Right. So if you were to think about part of um, think about uh, exhibits at the museum where you might see, for example, a timeline of personal computers, um, where where in the history of personal computers do you think we are in the history of computing? In other words, uh, like, are we even to like the the. Mac yet? Oh, um, that's an interesting question. I think I think that there's so much more to come. I think that it's such a young field, as you mentioned. Um, our exhibit revolution goes back two thousand years, looking at the Antikythera mechanism and things like that. Right. But in terms of actual personal computing as we know it today, I think that we've only just scratched the surface. I think we're like, we're like a Commodore. <laughs> Maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I love the Commodore though. It was a great, great computer. <laughs> so uh, that's not a bad place to be. And I think that a lot of creativity came out of that era. And I think that that's kind of where we are today, that, yeah. um, as we walk through the revolution exhibit, um, you, you can really feel, things progressing from these massive room-sized computers and getting smaller and suddenly not just looking like they're for business and scientific and research use anymore and changing with a graphic user interface to the point that anybody could use computers, right? Yeah. Um, the Xerox Alto and the team at Xerox Park, the Palo Alto Research Center, um, the work that they did to create WYSIWYG and graphic user interface and Ethernet really changed the way that we understood what computers could be used for. And then of course, all of the personal computers that came along, um, like the Macintosh and Apple II and IBM PC and things like that, um, really making computers accessible to everyone um, rather than experts. And I think that now that we're past that stage, people who have great ideas and creativity are able to engage with technology in a way that they don't need to be technical experts, but they can still create and change the way that we as humans are then able to use this technology and improve upon it as our tool to um, change our path moving forward. I think that's a great place for us to jump into um, where I really wanted to um, spend some time with you today. We, we could take our uh, conversation in lots of different directions um, because there is so much happening at the Computer History Museum and, um, and in your role as a practitioner, not just as a museum educator, but also um, in, in teaching computer science in different contexts, uh, we have lots to talk about. But today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the women of computing and, and really set in this context of computer history, I think... Um, well, first, uh, let me not make assumptions that we both agree that the role of women in computing has been, um, has been 
just underappreciated generally. Um, are, are we on the same page about that? Absolutely. I think that um, there's a lot of reasons for that historically, and I'm excited that there's more focus being brought to women in technology and women in all kinds of areas of work. I think not just in this field, but um, right now in our kind of cultural and political climate where we are today, we're seeing more and more women getting engaged in politics and learning to really take those chances and get out there and be supportive of not just themselves, but of each other and advocate for this. And I think that men are also doing a great job of advocating for women in many situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think maybe that not, maybe not enough. <laughs> but, moving in the right better, direction, better, getting better. Um, so we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about three, um, three women whose contributions have, uh, changed Mm -hmm. computer science and, and computing over time. Um, where should we start? Um, well, I think possibly one of my favorite people to talk about, especially when I'm working with youth and families at the museum. Um, and I do actually mention a lot of women when I'm talking to students and families, um, not just because I feel like I should, but because they're super badass. They're amazing. And they're not necessarily known about. And I think that it's crucial, not just for young girls and women um, to know about these people who came before, who laid the groundwork for so much of not just where women are today, but where technology is today. I think it's really important that young boys as well are seeing women as pioneers and innovators and leaders in this this field. So um, one of the women that I often speak about is a woman named Margaret Hamilton. And um, she is just a super interesting person, I think. And at the time when she was doing the initial work related to the space program was really breaking some ground in terms of what expectations were out there and really kind of setting the stage for so much of the incredible work that women are doing today in the field of um, aerospace. So, um, so Margaret Hamilton was a young woman at the time when the space race was happening and the United States was very much striving to get a human, a man on the moon. And um, at the time, it was, of course, the 1960s. And Margaret Hamilton ended up leading the team that created the onboard space, um, the onboard flight software for NASA's Apollo 11 command modules and the lunar modules. And so she was actually leading quite a large team of volunteers. She was in her mid-20s at the time. And Um, Of course, as you can imagine, in the 1960s, a lot of the engineers were men. Um, So Margaret didn't seem to mind that at all and just was excited about the opportunity to do the work she loved and to get involved. Um, One of the really exciting and crucial things that she did is that she realized that with all of the software running and all of the different systems running um, in the spacecraft, um, there would need to be commands written into the code to ensure that the most important things happened at the right times. And so she didn't want the moon landing to be in process and all of a sudden have radar systems bringing in data and crashing the computer system. She wanted to make sure that if landing on the moon was a possibility, that's exactly what the computer software would then prioritize. Um, So the work she did was crucial to 
prioritization software, not just for the Apollo 11 mission, but also in the field as a whole. Um, and she, at the time, was, you know, all of engineering at the time, computer science and software engineering, you couldn't study that in school. There mm -hmm. were no courses. It was all new. People were pioneering this in the workplace and solving problems on the ground and on the fly. And she really felt that this type of engineering needed to be legitimized and needed to be its own recognized form of engineering. And she made up the term software engineer because she felt it needed to be distinguished slightly from other types of engineering. And she really was a great role model for so many engineers in the field, um, as well as women, of course. Yeah. But, um, of course, the moon landing um, is something that we're really excited about this year because it is the 50th anniversary this year of the moon landing coming up on July 20th. So we're a little bit uh, hyped up about that. And we do have on display the Apollo guidance computer. Um, it's an engineering prototype that we have. And we often talk about Margaret Hamilton and the work she did. Um, she also was recently featured in 2017 as one of our fellows of the museum. We have a program that recognizes people who have done really incredible and innovative work in the field of computer science and technology. And we were very fortunate to welcome her to the museum in person to receive her award and wow. speak with us. So I was honored to meet her myself and, um, doubly inspired by all of the stories that I had been telling about her and hearing about her for years. And, um, yeah, so she is a really incredible role model in my opinion. That's amazing. Did you get to, uh, to ask her any burning questions when you met her? Um, I didn't ask her too many questions. She, there was a lot going on and it was a very big event and yeah. we were really honored to have her there. So I, I tried not to overwhelm her, but you know, I had been leading tours and talking about her and the work she'd done for years. And I thought I was going to be able to play it all cool and introduce myself. And I got so emotional and overwhelmed when I met her <laughs> that yeah. I just was really excited to meet her and didn't, didn't dive into too many conversations. Um, she ended up the, that was so early in her career and she had a very impressive career after the Apollo yeah. 11. Um, and she ended up working in risk management type of software development, um, for most of her career. And the type of work that she really focused on was, um, man life risk where a human life was actually on the line if the software wasn't working properly. So, Wowzers. um, pretty high stakes and pretty interesting stuff. And, uh, yeah, she is definitely a leader in that field. I would, I would want to ask her now, maybe, maybe, um, I'd want to ask her about whether just the, it seems so kind of on the nose as a, as a question, but, but, um, just whether working on like the, the nomenclature of the time and like the way we named, the race to put a man on the moon in quotes, um, like whether at the time as she's working on that, um, she was, was clear about how much, um, you know, like just how sexist, like the whole endeavor or whole context was, or whether, um, or whether it, it, uh, in, in hindsight, it feels that way. Um, 
you know, because because it, it's just like even when we talk about it now and that history now, the the man on the moon kind of narrative, um, it feels so crazy to be celebrating uh, someone like her, you know, on, on this endeavor where we weren't sending a person to the moon. We we're sending a man. Um, so so it's it's uh, it's a fascinating history to me. She has uh, later. And, you know, it, I guess it's also extraordinary that to think that we're really um, fully kind of celebrating her more now, so many years after um, her many accomplishments. But but she has a presidential medal of freedom and um, and has has uh, some some amazing notoriety. Um, but uh, tell me the you you use the phrase. Uh, prioritization software. Mm-hmm. Can you just for for people who maybe couldn't um, picture how after something like the Apollo landing, um, how that kind of software would play out and be um, replicated in different environments? Is that something you can help us uh, understand a little bit? Um, from my perspective, when I work with the youth and families that I do at the museum, um, we talk about prioritization in a way of, you know, like, what's the priority when you get home from school and that type of thing so they understand it. And really, as that technology plays out in other types of computer programming, I think there's anything from that very high risk type of situation that Margaret and her teams worked on um, to less man risk type of situations where you really just want certain code to be activated at certain times. Mm -hmm. And while you have certain aspects of the program running all the time, perhaps you might want certain code to then happen specifically if something else happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't think I'm explaining it very well, but yeah, I think that it, um, plays out in all kinds of different ways and in, in programming as we know it today. Yeah. So the, the idea of timing and the way that intersects with processing, mm-hmm. um, is, is kind of everything, um, in software now. Right. As I describe software to students, I typically explain it as a really clear and specific set of instructions that, Machines can't read between the lines like humans can, and we have to communicate in very specific languages that that machine understands. And then we also need to communicate in very specific ways within that language. And machines aren't going to make assumptions about things, typically, although we're exploring some fields of um, artificial intelligence and robotics now that are looking to change that. But um, historically, the machine is really just doing exactly what we've asked it to do and commanded it to do through the code. And so prioritization code is crucial because as instructions are running through the machine and being processed, the machine needs to know what should happen at certain in certain situations that it can't just think about like a human could on the fly. It mm-hmm. needs to actually be told like, if this happens, if this is a possibility, then do this. So for example, in the moon landing situation, if landing on the moon is a possibility, if the rest of our computer system is in the process of doing that, then let's activate that code and stop some of the other functionality that's not essential right now mm-hmm. and make sure that that's possible and able to happen. Yeah. Or if, uh, you know, if sensor, you know, 
why uh senses heat um you know having to uh interrupt systems and it's what's what's interesting to think about is just like what the what the if then statements of a a uh a rocket um or landing uh what did they call it a landing vehicle um yeah but the difference between that and like your your uh what what most people are thinking of in the age of the internet as Mm -hmm. software um it it gets fun so um that's a great place to start and a timely one with the with the 50th anniversary so so who else is is on our list moving from uh margaret hamilton um one of my other favorite people to talk about is grace hopper Mm -hmm. and people many people know about grace hopper i think and one of the reasons that i really am inspired by her is that not only was she brilliant um, mathematician and um, physicist and computer scientist um, which again wasn't necessarily a term that existed at the time Um, she was doing some really groundbreaking work but Beyond that, she was an educator. She was passionate about helping people understand what the heck was going on. This field Mm -hmm. was all new. And again, just as Margaret Hamilton was pioneering within that field of aerospace, Grace Hopper was also pioneering within the world she worked. And um, I've seen some incredible videos of her speaking with uh, students in a classroom and um, we even have some stories one of one of the things that she used to talk about a lot for example um, was a nanosecond Mm. and she really wanted people to understand what a nanosecond was um, because they were working on computers and computers were at the time getting smaller and circuits were getting smaller and a nanosecond then is a billionth of a second and in her perspective and she just talked really matter-of-factly and could explain things really clearly and if she couldn't understand what a billion was in a really rational way um, then how could she understand a billionth and how could other people and so she used to be known for carrying around a bunch of wires and when um, when she was especially working with kids and um, university students, she would often bring wires. And these wires were something that she had come up with to explain a nanosecond. And what they were was the the maximum distance that electricity could travel in a billionth of a second, but measured out in the length of a wire. Hmm. So these wires were 11.8 inches long. And of course, a nanosecond um, the, the content they were talking about wouldn't be traveling through a wild wire. Typically it'd be traveling through space, um, velocity of light, but she was able to have a physical representation of what that was like. So that, um, in her case in the Navy, if, you know, higher up officials were asking her, why is this taking so long for something to get some information to travel from the satellite to where we are? She's like, well, it's a lot of these nanoseconds and hold up the wire between here and there up in the satellite. And we have people who have come into the museum over the years who have brought in their nanosecond wires that they received from Grace Mm. Hopper. Oh, that's so cool. Like Grace gave me this. It was amazing. And um, yeah, so I think that I really have a huge admiration and respect for Grace Hopper as 
um, as an educator more than anything else. Um, I think she, her work was incredible working, um, developing, uh, he, she, she worked to develop, um, a compiler, um, and compiler based pr programming languages. Um, so, um, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, she worked to create a language called COBOL, um, mm. which many people have heard of, of course. Um, but that was very early days of that type of software and programming um, yeah. taking place. And of course, I think it's incredible all the work she did, but um, to be able to really get other people excited and help people to understand why the work you're doing is interesting and how it relates to their lives and how they can kind of better see themselves in that picture and make sense of it, I think is incredible. So um, as an educator, especially, I find her fascinating and really inspiring. Hmm. She, she would likely have been, we're kind of working backwards, which is great. Uh, she would likely have been the kind of person that uh, Margaret Hamilton uh, would have looked up to they're sort of one generation apart and um i love some of the as i am uh doing my own research on grace hopper um some of the the tidbits in her wikipedia profile are, are pretty outstanding uh including that uh among uh within the navy she would often be referred to as amazing grace um and yeah, ha, ha, very noted on her as an educator and somebody who was who w was passionate about um, sort of passing what she knew along to another generation um, of computer scientists. So um, I love that one. Um, what else? If if you had, uh, I'm I'm assuming uh, Grace Hopper is not somebody you've had a chance to meet. Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, unfortunately, she um, passed away before I was involved in this museum and uh, the field. But she's definitely someone who I think would have been absolutely incredible to meet. And probably like she's very funny, too. And so I think she's just very relatable and definitely someone who I think, you know, if you could travel back through time and meet someone, she'd be on my list for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, so so. Uh... If you had a question to ask of Grace Hopper, do you have one? Hmm. I think I think I'd be interested in knowing her thoughts on some of the technologies that we're developing today. I think she was such a creative thinker and she really was a problem solver. Yeah. And I think that those skills are crucial in today's world and it's um, less important to know specific coding languages and um have those specific skills as much as it's more important to be able to think really creatively and think outside the box and look at problems as a challenge to be solved rather than um, a massive hurdle to overcome. And yeah. I think that she is just a creative thinker in that way. And I would love to know more about um, what she, you know, how she might address some of the challenges and problems that we're facing today and um, some of the technology that we're building and learning from as we build. Cause yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think that she would have a really unique and fresh perspective on some yeah. of that. You, you teach, um, computer science in, in different contexts and, um, you meet a lot of young women, um, who presumably you also get to introduce, uh, figures like Grace Hopper to, mm -hmm. um, what's the reaction from young women when, when, uh, you talk about 
some of the the uh, women who have uh, come before and and sort of laid a, a pathway for women in tech? Yeah, I think that it's really important um, within the museum context and in all teaching, quite honestly, to find points of engagement for all people in the room, whether that's young students or adults or the chaperones or grandparents in the room, that they can really find ways of identifying with the story you're telling. So I think education and teaching is really about storytelling um, and making things relatable. Um, The students that I talk to about some of these historical figures, their eyes go big and wide and they're excited and they're like, wow, she was young, like a little bit older than me. And, and she did that. And wasn't she scared? And what did she think? And of course I'm not inside these people's heads and I wouldn't claim to know exactly, but we can speculate and imagine. And I think this style of discussion based learning is something that we really strongly believe in at the museum. And I personally believe in really bringing the students into the discussion and into the conversation and having them explore what they think might be possible and building off the information that you're sharing to really think creatively about um, the context within which these events took place. This person was an innovator and really kind of put themselves in the mindset of what that must have been like and then relate that back to their own lives in some way. How could they Mm. learn from that and build forward? And have they been in a situation when they've been a little worried about trying something new and what was that like and how did they Mm. overcome it? Um, And I think that as much as, you know, Margaret Hamilton, for example, um, I think was so passionate about the work she was doing and just so excited to just work on these projects that maybe she wasn't as overwhelmed by working with hundreds of male engineers as I might be or someone else might be. But I think um, we're able to speculate about what that could be like and learn from it. Um, And even without knowing her exact perspective, students can really think about all kinds of different factors that relate to that. Um, and when, we, when I tell the story of Margaret Hamilton, for example, um, you know, the starting point is that the moon landing happened and we definitely um, have all these great pieces of history, but at the time, no one heard of Margaret. Everyone heard about the moon landing. Millions of people were gathered from all over the world, watching televisions, listening to the radio and hearing it happen. And it wasn't until much later that any of the work underlying that mission really came to light. And of course, that makes sense because just seeing someone land and walk on the moon is incredible. And of course, that's the exciting part in that moment. But then working with and speaking with students to be reflecting on imagining what that must have been like for Margaret and her team as they watched it and imagine what that must be like knowing that it was your software, that the the program they wrote was in process and almost ready to go. And as they were working on it and getting closer to the launch date, it was Margaret who realized that if they didn't write certain instructions in the moon landing might not be possible. They might get all the way to the moon and then not be able to land for some reason. And so it was her working with her team to be able to solve for that. So yeah, I think just getting into the headspace of those innovators and that storytelling aspect is really helpful. And the students engage in the story. And in that way, they're able to really um, hopefully retain that information, but also continue thinking creatively and continue, continue to look at the context of history and technology and not just the exact end result. Yeah. I love about, um, 
too about figures like um, Grace Hopper, who who is she was buried in Arlington National Cemetery and uh, was a rear admiral in the Navy. Um, the model that some of these leaders in this space took um or were for not not taking no for an answer and uh the persistence so one of the um details that i read in her bio was that she originally tried to enlist um in the navy during world war ii but was denied because she was um you know and the reason they told her was that she was too old she was 34 um so she went and enlisted in the reserves and eventually ended up um in the navy but um i just think it's such a such an amazing example um the sense of service and uh, the persistence through systems that were clearly uh biased and and not working to support everyone um but to persevere and 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 find ways of making just such gigantic contributions is so impressive to me so uh we're two uh, innovators in. So this is actually a perfect spot for us to take a quick break. Um, and we will, I want to hold that thought and let's come back to it. Okay. Sounds great. I hope you're enjoying the show. I have a favor to ask every one of no such things. Listeners, facebook.com slash no such thing podcast. I need your ideas, opinions, feedback. I need to know who's listening. There is a listener survey at the top of the page. Click on it. I promise you it'll take less than three minutes. If you're a fan and you want to support these conversations, please like, rate, review the podcast wherever you downloaded. You can find all episodes at nosuchthingpodcast.org. Where, uh, where, if you had only three, you were introducing to a group of, uh, students in a, uh, in one of your, the settings where you work, um, where, where should we land? The other person that I was hoping to mention is Katherine Johnson. And mm -hmm. she's actually someone who many of us have heard about more recently in the past few years. Mm -hmm. Um, there's been, um, book and movie recently um, called Hidden Figures that has mentioned her. Um, but again, I think she's someone who just was really passionate about the work that she was doing. She loved mathematics ever since being a young child and um, pursued mathematics and pursued a career in that and was supported by her partner and her family and was able to attend university at a time when um, many, many women and many people from different ethnic backgrounds were not able to do so. Um, and so I think that, again, you know, you were mentioning before that so many of these women really persevered to get into the places that they were to do the work they did. And I look at all three of these examples, and I really, for me, what stands out is that they just loved the science. They loved doing the math and they loved yeah. figuring out problems and they loved that work. And I think that in, for, for most of them, I think that's what spurred them forward as well. And, um, they definitely had to overcome some hurdles and 
but because they loved what they were doing and they were passionate about it, that's what drove them forward. Um, so yeah, I think Katherine Johnson is another really interesting person and she is actually someone who we're featuring this year um, in our Fellows Awards. Um, so she's been nominated and will be um, receiving an award on May 4th. And so we're very excited about that. And Amazing. Um, yeah, and so, you know, the work she did was incredible in the 1960s and um, she was also involved with the Apollo 11 and um, helped to calculate the trajectory for the mission um, of the Apollo 11 to the moon. And so, um, as I said, we're getting pretty hyped up and excited about the moon landing anniversary, but beyond that, she's just a really incredible, incredible person and mm. uh, definitely a pioneer in her field. Um, yeah, it's crazy. The, uh, the movie and all of the back and forth, you know, and stories about, you know, what of the, the way that that story was being told was accurate versus, uh, what, what the, the true story was. Um, I'm so glad that, uh, that you all are, are honoring her and, um, that, that she has a, a platform to sort of, um, talk more about what she's accomplished. Um, it is amazing how um, two two out of the three of the the women that we've talked about today um, came through the space program, um, and I wonder how you you know do you feel like there's um, if if we look at kind of the history of where um, leaders in the sort of movement of, um, or, or innovations related to computing. Uh, do you think that there's a modern equivalent of the space program where young women can sort of look to carve a path that, um, that helps them make amazing contributions? I think that, I think that the space program today is still a really exciting space to be. I think that there's a lot of incredible work happening there and, um, it's, I, I think I'm just really excited about space. I think it's amazing. And I think most young people are, um, both young girls and boys and, um, people around the world are still excited about that. It's something that we haven't learned all there is to know about. I don't think we've learned all there is to know about most things, but, mm. um, at the same time, I definitely see that changing and growing in, in the years to come. Um, and I think that, yeah, technology in general, I think is going to continue to evolve. And as you said, we're early days of, we're maybe at the Commodore stage of our timeline mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot more to come. Um, I think that autonomous vehicles is something that's going to change society in a pretty major, major way in the years to come, mm -hmm. um, as well as space research. Um, there's a lot of companies doing really interesting things, not just with space travel, but with asteroids and with um, space junk and all kinds of things like that. Um, we're actually... As part of our um, focus this year on the topic, um, we have a magazine called CORE that is our annual publication for the museum. And we're really excited to have several articles um, in that edition coming out soon about space and not just looking at historical figures, but looking at all different aspects of it. Um, we have one of our curators who will be um, sharing kind of the socio-political and uh, technological landscape of the space race at the time and how that kind of played out. Um, another 
um, curator is focusing on the influential role of science fiction within the com- field of computing mm. and um, drawing connections between futuristic visions of space and then actual realities of space exploration and development. Um, and we have um, another woman sharing um, more about space technology today, both private companies and um, other research with satellites and things like that. So we're excited to kind of explore all of that as we as we move forward. Yeah, I think that it's an exciting field for sure. So do you feel like um, I think that there um, certainly over the last 10 years, there's a conversation Globally, really, uh, but certainly in the U.S. about um, for a while, folks were, were saying, you know, code is the um, the fourth R of reading, writing, arithmetic, um, which aren't R's, but <laughs> whatever. Um, do you have thoughts about that? Do you do you feel like um, do you feel like that's true? Uh, is it a basic sort of literacy at this point or or do you think that those we're either inflating or conflating, uh, issues. I think that demystifying technology and computers is crucial. I think that, as I mentioned earlier, computers and technology are all around us. We're interacting with them all the time, whether we really acknowledge it or not. Um, and in all parts of the world as well, I think that it's just something that is we're, we're unlikely to take a major step back from technology. Mm. And I think that it's going to continue to change and grow and evolve. Um, I don't, I don't personally believe that every student needs to be a computer programmer. I don't believe that every student needs to be able to code in a certain language. As I mentioned before as well, I, I think language computer coding language is way less important than understanding core concepts about what you're trying to achieve and how to Mm. make that happen. Um, and being a really good problem solver and creative thinker, being able to collaborate, share ideas with others. Um, I think that understanding technology and being exposed to computer science and coding is crucial. Absolutely. I think that it's part of the world we live in and, um, in order to understand the world we live in and kind of pull back the the cover of what we're what we're using and what we're doing and how we're interacting with each other i think yes i think it's important um you know i think that it would be great if students got excited about that Mm -hmm. and bought into it the programs we lead at the computer history museum um in particular the design code build program um and, and others are really focused on being a first approach to computer science and to computer history as well in a really fun and engaging way. So we're hoping that students who mostly have little to no experience with anything besides using technology get to be hands-on with Raspberry Pi computers and see both the hardware and the software. And we're not expecting that students would come out of a one-day program um, like to like does design code build with a clear knowledge and understanding of coding, mm-hmm. but to understand the concept of it and to be less intimidated, to remove some of um, possibly the fear or uncertainty or lack of interest in that and have it be something fun and approachable that's for everybody is really, really important. Mm. So what we're doing in our programs um, is really to help remove barriers to access for students from all parts of the community, Um, students who maybe don't have someone in their family who works in the field, students who maybe have 
fewer resources in their neighborhoods or communities or schools um, and have those students have hands-on experience in a supportive collaborative environment that's non-competitive where it's okay to figure things out as you go and it's expected that it's probably not going to go perfectly the first time you try something because technology and how often does that ever happen Mm -hmm. Um, and really learning more about what that what the skill sets are in being an engineer and being a computer scientist and demystifying a little bit about both that field as well as technology as a whole. Do you have one if for new learners about the history of technology or uh, maybe it's more specifically women in tech, do you have a, a book or a resource you recommend to everybody who um, maybe doesn't get a chance to come hang out at the museum, um, but wants to dig in more to some of these topics, uh, where would you send them? I think that there's so many incredible organizations out there doing great work. And I think that what we're trying to do at the museum is, um, support what other people are doing as well. We're not trying to compete with other programs that are out there. We're trying to also, um, provide opportunities for students to gain that initial interest in the topic and then move on to maybe take a programming course or go to a coding camp or join an organization um, that's looking at more of that tech side. In terms of books, um, it's a great question. And I probably, maybe, should, maybe it's I, a probably movie. Should, I probably should have a really long list of those for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that some of the work being done by um, Reshma Sojani of Girls Who Code is incredible. I think the books that she's been publishing are great. She has, she's really become an incredible advocate for girls and women in computer science and STEM, Mm -hmm. um, as well as in the world, I think. She's a great role model. And um, I think there's many people like her who are setting out to do that. Um, There's many organizations who we partner with, and um, we're really excited to be able to do that. Another organization who's doing an incredible job um, highlighting really powerful female role models is uh, it's a global nonprofit organization called Wograma, and they're really on a mission to break stereotypes and inspire women and girls to pursue careers in engineering by showcasing real women, telling their stories, celebrating their accomplishments. They do a series of interviews with these women and feature them on social media and in ways that educators across the U.S. and across the world are able to then use that content in their classrooms, in their community organizations. And we also hope that our content that we're creating as a museum can be used in those ways too. So I think that as well as these historic figures that we've been discussing today, there's so many really wonderful role models out there um, who are doing real work that we can, we can look to and refer our young people to every day. Hmm. In terms of a specific book or movie, I don't know. I might have to come back to you on that. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll uh, I'll I'll keep an ear out, and when I do hear back from you on it, I will uh, I will update. Um, where can people follow, uh, find out more about uh, you and the the Computer History Museum? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is computerhistory.org, and we actually have a lot of really incredible information there. We have our exhibits online, so they aren't virtual 3D versions of the exhibits, but you can access all of the content about the different artifacts and stories and innovators through our website. 
And we also have all of the content from our programming. Um, so the, the Design Code Build program is one that I developed and launched in 2014. And each event is a six-hour program that engages a large number of students each day to have these hands-on initial experiences to get excited about technology and um, computers. Each event is also keynoted by a guest we call them rock star guest speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them are not actual musicians, although there's been a few. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are people from the tech industry who come in to share their personal stories and their paths with the students. And what we really strive to do is to bring in individuals who help students to see themselves reflected in some way. I think one of the things that is often talked about in this discussion of um, representation within computer science and STEM fields is that you really need to see people who look like you and sound like you and um, you can identify with in in some capacity to feel like you have good role models. And I think these historic women that we've been talking about are incredible women. And I think that at the same time, there's really incredible women and men today who are out there being great role models. And so what we try to do at the museum is to bring those people into the space and into the museum to interact directly with students. The content from each of those presentations is also actually on our YouTube channel. So we've had approximately 60 or 70 different guest rock star speakers over the years from all parts of the industry and from all different backgrounds. And I, um, you know, people from different ethnic identity backgrounds, gender identity backgrounds, people from all sides of the field working in aerospace, as we've been kind of talking about a bit today, Mm -hmm. as well as environmental tech or robotics, um, product uh, product managers and um, UX designers and everything in between, really trying to show students also that whatever your passion is, is something that you can do within this field. And that doesn't need to be just programming, but it's really great to understand what that is and what that looks like in order to better understand the world around us and see where your passions can align. Um, So yeah, so we're excited to have that program and we're very fortunate to the sponsors we have who have been supporting us over the years to make it happen and to our guest speakers who have just been incredible volunteers to come in and share their personal stories and really share not just the technology they're working with today, but what did they like to do in middle school? What was their path like? Did they face challenges along the way? And if so, how did they overcome those? And what mentors did they have, if any? And what advice do they have for middle schoolers today? So really reflecting on their own story and telling their story in a way that our middle school age audience can relate to. And we hope that audiences beyond the museum can relate to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I watched several of the talks on the YouTube channel and I can't recommend them, uh, highly enough. Um, Kate, thanks so much for doing this. Computerhistory.org is where folks can find out more and track down some of the resources you just mentioned. And I will also throw that in the show notes. Thank you so much for spending the time today. Thank you. I've been really enjoying our conversation and I, I hope to continue it in the future. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support 
from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.